Navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. Welcome to today's episode of The Mentor, ESQ. I'm very, very excited to have my longtime friend and colleague, Royce Russell, in the studio today. Welcome, Royce. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Royce uh, is a prominent civil rights lawyer here in New York City and criminal defense lawyer. And I thought it would be nice if Royce could share with us a little bit about himself. Royce, if you could sort of tell us how you got into this field, maybe starting back with your background, because one thing I've been talking about here in The Mentor is how everybody's background, of course, shapes their life and their upbringing does, but especially as a lawyer and deciding what area of law you want to go into what types of cases you want to handle, what type of people you want to represent as clients is very much shaped by things in your life or experience you've had. So I'm really curious, given the type of work you do now, where you're fighting for those people that have been you know, shot or abused by the police, and you're defending the people that need representation in court, what is it about your background that led you to be where you are today? Well, first of all, I want to thank you for having me on The Mentor. And I, I may be a little long-winded in this answering your question, but I want to make sure that our audience understands fully of who Royce Russell is, ESQ. This area of law, civil rights, false arrest, police brutality, is part of the fabric of who I am. Growing up in the Bronx, growing up in underservice areas such as St. Mary's, which is a project in the Bronx, also known as Fort Apache, you see how people who are working poor to poor are treated. You see how they lack of services. You see how the property and the places where they live are totally different than the same building. You could take the same property and put it at 96th Street and you put it in St. Mary's in the Bronx and you have two different level of services, two different trajectories of people that come from that area, two different outcomes two different courtesies and the way people are treated in community and relations. So having grown up in that area, having seen the conflict between people in the community and police, which it wasn't always that way. There was a far part of my formative years where there was community policing and you knew the officer in the area and he had tickets to the Yankee game and you develop a relationship and we knew who the bad guys and who were the good guys. That changed during the tenure of me growing up in that area to the point where now, to me, police are occupying forces in certain areas, which these people, me, people of color, people young, people old, people of middle age, more often than not, need someone to serve as a voice for them. And so that's how I started the practice into civil rights after becoming a prosecutor and serving the community to keep that community safe and after being an attorney for the Department of Justice. What was your neighborhood like growing up? Everyone knew everyone. And for what it was worth, I now look back on it and it was poor. And it still is poor. My own experiences is that it wasn't until about eighth grade, maybe seventh or eighth grade, that I realized that money is just supposed to be green. Now, you may not know this. Back then, when you were on food stamps, you had a booklet 
where dollar bills were one color might be brown, a $5 bill might be green, a $10 bill might be purple, a 20 might be yellow. And you can only use that money for certain items. You couldn't buy cigarettes. You couldn't buy liquor. You could only buy toiletries and food. Did you use food stamps growing up? Yes, yes. And so that's the booklet that you had. And uh, family of four, I got three other siblings, an older older sister, older brother, a younger brother, my mother and my father. And, you know, for a good portion of our life, we were poor, working poor. Now, I must say my father stint at the postal, postal service and my mother working in computers and teacher's aid before she stayed home was a blessing because then we went from food stamps to realizing money was green. And so there was a certain code where I grew up. You can laugh and joke about a lot of things, but you wouldn't laugh and joke about food stamps because any day the person that is telling the joke could be the person that's on food stamps. And so it was that thin line that a lot of things you talked about, which helped me build the exterior and the toughness that you need to litigate in this world, that words really can't hurt me, it's about resolution and the facts. I got that at a very, very young age. And I know what it's like to be thankful, you know, look at someone that might be homeless, who might have a worse situation than I, and realize that I've seen worse, I could be in worse situations, and I'm just thankful for being in the place that I am. But that ultimately led ultimately led me to cardiac arrest. And I'll just make, I'm going to plug it all day. Do Andrew, it, you know me. I'm going to plug it all day. You can plug as much Cardiac as arrest. Yep. A tactical guide on how to handle unlawful arrest. Now, for and, those not watching this on uh, online, uh, Royce is holding up. He has a book. He published a book called Cardiac Arrest. Tell us about your book. Not only a book, this is an autographed sign book for you, my brother. Hey, look at that. And, I finally and, get it. And what it says, it says, the big give back. And what I mean by that is having uh, a show like this, The Mentor, and watching you practice and watching our relationship, you've always given back. And that will come full circle to you. So you. whenever I go to a book signing and whether someone is paying for the book, whether it's on Amazon or whether it's cardiacbook.net or cardiacarrestbook.net, excuse yep. me, where you can purchase it, I always like to sign it. So awesome. I'm Thank signing you. your copy. So and I keep this in the glove compartment keep of that my in, car? <laughs> keep that in your glove compartment. And we also give out a silicone band for those that are not watching. It says cardiac arrest on one side in red and black. And then on the other side, uh, it's reversible. It says, think calm. And we could talk about that later on, but yep. I want you to have your, your band, Great. all right? So once again, growing up in the Bronx and, and watching the transformation from community policing to occupying and having service, having practiced law in the prosecutor's office and Department of Justice, I've seen a lot. I've seen a lot in prosecuting and on the criminal defense side. And there's a lot to be said how that community is treated. And now we see over social media and in various states, it's not necessarily a color issue anymore. It might be a class issue, you know, or it might be a power issue. So just looking at it from a color perspective is is only shallow. You know, it goes way deeper than that. It goes to implicit biases. It goes to quota system. It goes to classism. I'm rich, you're poor, or you're rich, I'm poor. Uh, it goes to just abuse of power. And so trying to effectuate that area of law led me into civil rights, false arrest, police brutality, 1983 claims, where, as you're going to see, and we'll talk about later, just briefly for those who are listening, on uh, Andrew's silicone band, it says, think calm. And that is the acronym for everyone when they are a victim of an unlawful stop and they're trying to manage their way. Think calm. And that stands for C, stay composed. 
because oftentimes our emotion gets the best of us. Rightfully, if you're in a certain demographic of a certain color where this has happened to you repeatedly and repeatedly, but you need to stay composed because as your attorney, Royce Russell, I need certain information to, in order to pursue a complaint or a lawsuit. And we can discuss how that happens. I want you to be aware. I want you to be aware. And that's what the A is for and calm. Be aware. Know that there may be video cameras around you. And so put yourself in a position where the video camera can capture it. Or be aware. Look for names. Look for shields. Look for license plates of the car. Look for the badge number of the police officer. I want you to listen. Not necessarily listen as to being subservient. You should listen to the police officer unless you feel that you're in danger. I'm not going to tell you not to do that. But listen to what is being said. Listen to the fact that one officer may say, Andrew or Johnson, can you pass me something? So now you got a name that you can give to me later on so I can pursue an action. So that's the L in calm. And M is make a call. When you're in that situation and you're feeling that your rights are being violated and you're fearful reaching for your phone because you might get shot and you don't know what to do, it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to scream out names to bystanders and say, please watch this. I am scared. And as a matter of fact, can you call my mother, my brother, my sister? But in order to do that, you can't be a dummy with a smartphone. That means you actually have to memorize a number. You actually have to know a number in your head because far too many times we don't memorize numbers anymore. We just go to a name, Donna, Jane, Phil. We just press that name and the number comes up. This requires you to, to memorize a number so that stranger after they videoing or during the video, can call a loved one to say, this is what's happening to your son, your husband, your uncle, your brother. They need help. And as a community, we can be the checks and balances that we need to be in every aspect of life, in every foot, in every step of life. So that's how I'm entrenched in the area of civil rights. Uh, my, my hopes and my promises is that LeBron James calls me up and says, come down to, to the I Promise School in, in Cleveland and we could talk about this. Or, or Sean Puffy Combs says, come down to the Capitol Preparatory School in Harlem or in the Bronx or in Connecticut and let's talk about this. Or Eagle Academy with David Banks. This should be on the forefront in every school. It should be at the forefront of every college. It should be at the forefront of every person because it is dominating this world. You cannot leave social media without seeing something tragic or hearing about something tragic in the media. It seems more and more we're hearing about you know, police shootings, police brutality, and things that come out afterwards that were on video camera, you know, show a different story than how the police wrote up what happened. In your book, under where it says cardiac arrest, it's a tactical guide on how to handle unlawful police stops. And is it that, have you learned in your career that too many people put themselves in a worse situation because they may not have been doing anything wrong except being a young man of color driving down a street. And because of how they acted when they got pulled over is what escalated a situation that actually got them into some trouble that if they had followed your rules and your guidelines, everything could have worked out much better. Well, the answer to that is yes or no. I want to make sure that we understand I'm not going to blame the victim, right? And I'll use this long-term, old-school analogy. You know, the lady who has the short skirt on should not be victimized if she is a victim of rape. Should not be. You should be able to wear what you want to wear and do what you want to do. Or if she had a drink or two, or if she was, you know, a little bit intoxicated, 
that does not cover the act. So if I've been stopped 20 times, and this is the 21st time, well, yes, I'm livid. Yes, I'm mad. Yes, I'm a whole bunch of things. And that may cause a situation to be worse. However, who's the professional? The police are. There's times that I represent clients, very few times, but I represent clients and their family members don't really understand what's going on. And they come at you in a hostile way or they come at you in a way that's not so pleasant, but they don't know everything. As a professional, as a lawyer, if I flew off the handle at them and say, you don't know what you're talking about, step back. I represent this young man, not you. I wouldn't live to see another case. The disciplinary people would be called. The committee would be called. That's not professional. So I think as a police officer, knowing the world that we live in, and you have to make that stop, as a professional, you have to take the higher road. Yes, this man might be aggressive. Yes, this woman might be aggressive. Yes, this woman might be tired. Yes, this woman is standing up for their rights or this person is standing up for their rights. You as the professional need to seize the moment and make sure that everybody understand what is going on. And I understand what it's like to be frustrated because every day I'm not in a suit and a tie and I don't have a nice sports coat on. I have my you know sweats on, my gym shorts on. And I understand what it's like to be stopped and say, all right, here we go. I walk with a certain air of confidence and arrogance because I know the law. There's a lot of people that don't know the law. The woman that sees a police car follow closely behind her doesn't know that she can call 911 and say, I'm going to pull over to an area that's lit. I'm just not going to pull over right here to the right or the left. And that person doesn't know it because they fear that if they do that, then they're going to agitate the police officer, not realizing by placing that 911 call. That goes on the radio. Those officers that are pursuing you should hear it on the radio that this woman is in fear. And so she's pulling over at the nearest Dunkin' Donut where it is like she is not trying to flee. And you have to be the professional that when you get out of your car, you have to understand that and not be so emotional and caught up with that you're trying to escape or you're challenging my authority. You're doing something other than complying. And that's the world that we live in. The question that I ask a police officer, why did you stop me, doesn't translate. It is my impression. It doesn't translate in their brain as a question. It translates as someone challenging you. It's a statement. No, it's a question. I want to know why you pulled me over. And even though there's no law to say that you have to give the reason, it might be nice, or I'll give you that in a second, something that puts me at ease because this tension exists based upon history. Royce, I want to talk about you, Royce the person, and how Royce the person has become Royce the lawyer. This podcast is The Mentor, ESQ, and what I aim to do through what I talk about and having guests like yourself here is to give young lawyers and lawyers that have been practicing a while, but maybe are at a crossroads and maybe not sure of why they're doing what they're doing or thinking about switching gears, sort of the behind the scenes of lawyers like us, you know, how we get to be who we are and what road we've traveled, sort of what our journey's been to get here. And now that we've been doing this for a couple of years, yeah. when we look back, what we've learned, what maybe the, the, those lawyers listening to us now can take from it. So if you could tell me, how does someone that grows up in a poor neighborhood in the Bronx uh, on food stamps, 
How do you even get to law school? How do you get to become a lawyer? What's the journey you took? Did you fall into it where you said you one step at a time, you, you worked your way to just know that you wanted to go to a good college, which you went to at Fordham University? Did you then later decide, oh, what am I going to do for a career? Did you always know what you want to do? Tell me and tell us how it is that Royce, the person, went from a poor young man in the Bronx without a lot of opportunities handed to you to where you made opportunities to become the successful lawyer you are today? Well, with that question, I'll answer it in, in the following manner. Everyone has their own spirituality. They have their own belief, Orthodox Jew, Protestant, Baptist, Catholic, you name it. When you travel the road that I've traveled, and I'm not the only one that's traveled it, and many people have traveled a worse road than I, you have to have a sense of spirit and spirituality and something above. Because my family, I love my mother, bless my father who passed away. They, they were not highly educated academically. So therefore, the path of going to college and going to law school was not one that was forced in our household. What was forced in our household, rightfully or wrongfully, and sometimes I look back and say rightfully, was when you graduate high school, you get a job. And you go work for the post office because for generations, that's what we did. You get a job. You go work for UPS. A lot of my friends that work for the post office and UPS now are now retired and I'm still working. So <laughs> that's why I say rightfully or wrongfully. Right. I mean, that might have been something that you, you know, I should have endeavored. But you were told to look at the chief newspaper, find a union job and go in that direction. So divine intervention had to be in play for me not to go that way, knowing that although we were rich in spirit and our neighborhood was rich in trying to have people come out successful, but we were poor economically, that there wasn't a clear path to victory. There wasn't a clear path that you're going to do A and you're going to do B and there you go. So as a guy who had dreams of wanting to play in the NBA, a guy who grew up and played with and, and against guys like Rod Strickland and, and Dedrick Irving, Kyrie Irving's dad, and other guys that didn't make the pros, or went overseas. Growing up with those guys and playing basketball, that was the way that I saw the path. It wasn't until I went to various tournaments like the Boston shootout when we went to Boston and we played against guys like Ramiro Robinson and Patrick Ewing, I realized everybody's playing basketball <laughs> everywhere. And a whole lot of guys are better than me. That didn't stop the dream, but that was a, a data point that is like, wow, it's just not the Bronx. It's just not Harlem. It's just not New York. It's upstate. It's Boston. It's Providence. It's everywhere. Did that reset the lines? No, I don't think directly, but implicitly it did. So as I matriculated to go to high school, I went to a school called Fordham Prep. I knew nothing about Fordham Prep. Knew nothing. I didn't even know it existed. I happened to be playing basketball somewhere in Harlem. A gentleman by the name of Bruce Bott, who has since passed away, he was the athletic director at Fordham Prep, came by, recruited some kids, said you had to go to a summer program. If you did well, you can go to the school. I did well in a summer program. It was called a higher achievement program. I did well in the summer program, me and a couple of other guys that were playing sports. So next thing you know, I was in Fordham Prep. So that's divine intervention. That's spiritual. That's not anything that my parents planned for. We couldn't afford it. So Fordham Prep did some things and we did some things. And next thing you know, I was there playing basketball. Little did I know that that was the beginning of my cultural development because I grew up in an area that was black and Latino. 
I often thought I was Latino, even though I couldn't speak Spanish, <laughs> because that was the grammar school I went to was all Latino. Now I'm in this institution where it is full of Polish and Irish, white, maybe some Jewish, maybe five to maybe six or eight blacks in each class. You take a kid from the projects and you put them in prep school, that's a problem. <laughs> Project prep school problem. And having to deal with that diversity uh, helped me to evolve and see, all right, what's the next step? What's the next step? And a program I went to called the Archbishop Leadership Program helped develop the leadership skills that was necessary to get you to the next step. So I didn't do it all by myself. I'm not some prodigy that just gravitated to books. No, I'm actually, I don't think I'm that smart. I just think I work hard. And if I work hard, I can meet the guy at the table that's really smart and you won't know the difference. Uh, and then that led to, you know, Fordham University. And at the time that I was going to graduate, which I was a business major, I was a finance major. I was in the finance honors program. I wanted to become a compliance So I guess you attorney. are a little bit smart. A little bit. A little <laughs> bit. Hardworking, right? Which yeah. gave me good results yeah. that made it look like I was smart, right. right? There was guys that came to the table, like this guy, Chris Unrath. Uh, he and I were still good friends. You know, present value table, got it down pat. I had to look at the present value table a couple of times. And now I'm ready. Let me let me read that three more times. Now I'm ready. It but, reminds me of the kid I went to law school with. There's always one who would never show up at class and the night before the final exam would read, you know, the right. book and the materials and come in and, and ace it. Right. And we're like, how do you do that? Right. Right, you know? right, right, right. So I had to read it a couple of times yep. and then I would come in with a different spirit and still hopefully get the same result. But I wanted to work in, for the SEC. And we had the 1987 uh, black market crash. We had the crash then. And I was online to work for Oppenheimer. And with the crash, that was it. No more finance. I had a gentleman that was in my life. His name was Devro Canick and another gentleman named Rick Jones, who both are, are attorneys. Devro lived in my area and I didn't know he was a lawyer. I just saw an African-American male going in and out of the building and he didn't stop for much. You know what I mean? He was just moving around. It turns out he went to Fordham University, went to Fordham Law and is a lawyer. Another guy, Rick Jones, a guy who I, who's my mentor. I watched him play basketball. And I didn't know he went to Dartmouth and I didn't know he went to Georgetown Law School. So here you are again, you're meeting people in your path and they kind of mold who you are. So then I went to law school. They and, suggested to you, you know, or were you seeing them and said, they seem to have good careers. Look at these guys. Maybe this is something I can do. Is that what piqued your interest? Yeah. I, I, it, they never made the suggestion, you should become a lawyer. What happened is that if you're in this Birds who what fly flock Birds together, feather, feathers flock together, together, right? Yeah. So if you're in a certain mindset and someone catches you early on in your career yeah. and they expose you to, I don't know, Wall Street or they expose you to just hanging around them, then you start to, hey, how are you doing that? How are you doing? They may never say what they're doing, but somehow they you can, wind up in yeah, the path, right? You wind up in the path. Now, I believe Rick said he was an attorney. I never really knew what Devro did until I was in probably my junior year in college. And then when I, after I went to law school, I wound up interning at the Bronx DA's office under Devro Canick. Later on in life, I wind up managing his New York office when I first went into private practice. So these are constant people that, you know, that have been around. And so I don't know if I ever said, oh, I want to do exactly what you want to do. But then I had people going overseas playing basketball and saying, Royce, you know, can you look at this contract? You know, some guys that really, you really need to look out for them. And so there you are. And then you're in law school at Hofstra Law, right? Right, right correct. 
And okay. Oh, let me just tell you yep, a funny story sure. about Hofstra Law. Okay. So here it is. I'm going to law school. You know I can't pay for anything, right? And I happen to be talking to Rick Jones. And this is where the lawyer stuff. I knew he was a lawyer, but we lost contact with each other. And I remember visiting him when he was in a, a D.C. And I loved his brownstone apartment. And I was like, well, this guy can play basketball and do all these things and, and become a lawyer. I can do it, too. So I think that was a shining, shining moment. So now I'm stuck. And I'm trying to go to law school. I'm waiting for University of Wisconsin. Fordham is talking about at night. You know, I'm trying to do the, you know, I don't want to do the night thing. And here it is. Hofstra, I still got money to pay the air. You know, I, I don't know if I would made it to Hofstra or didn't. I, so I, I'm speaking to Rick and he was like, so what are the schools that you go? Well, you know, I'm waiting for Hofstra. He said, Hofstra? He said, you want to go to Hofstra? I said, yeah. You sure? I said, yeah. I said, yeah. He said, let me call you back. No one has ever said words like that. Let me call you back. I knew something was going to be done. I didn't know what. Next thing you know, I got a phone call back. And I don't know if it was from him or the dean of diversity. They said, you have a full scholarship called a merit scholarship. We'll see you in the next day. Wow. I never even knew what a merit scholarship was. And this is what I mean by exposure, right? Underserviced communities like St. Mary's. What is a merit scholarship? I don't know. Guess what? It's for kids that spend their entire academic career in the state of New York. I don't know if it still exists. So I went to St. Anselm Catholic School in the Bronx. I went to Fordham Prep High School. I went to Fordham University. And this merit scholarship said, since you went to those schools, Obviously, you had to have academic prowess. Next thing you know, I got the scholarship, and I'm there. Sounds like Rick Jones was a pivotal figure for you in getting into the field of law. Yeah, yeah. I must say him and Deborah Canick, definitely, definitely. And when you think about a mentor, was Rick your mentor? Did you have more than one mentor or no mentors once you got going in your career? Who helped guide you? Yeah in the practice of law as a lawyer to become a great lawyer? I would say Devro Kanek, Rick Jones, Anthony Rico, Ralph Cathcart. There are a bunch of people that may even be one year older than me in the practice of law, but maybe might be older than me as far as life is concerned. I think you can learn from everyone and you can learn from other people's mistakes. But as mentoring, those guys have been around, Devro Kanek, Rick Jones, they have been around from beginning to end. Devro from seeing me with block cheese coming from the community center where they gave you block cheese for free. You know it was unhealthy, but they gave it to you. <laughs> to Rick Jones, who's like, yeah. I got you. Don't worry about it. You finish up. Now, what do you want to do and how do you want to move your life in, in, in what way that you want to do that? And you know, I've had aspirations to do other things outside of just being in private practice, you know, diving into what shouldn't be a political arena, but district attorney's offices and things of that nature. And we could discuss that at another time. Those guys have always been around and say, yeah, you got what it takes. You, you, you can make that happen easily. And that goes from using what you've learned from growing up in the courtroom, your life experiences, and knowing that like the guy in law school that you mentioned, who just came in and just read the book and got great grades. I was a guy in law school that as long as you weren't shooting, as long as you wasn't stealing, if you told me that I had to read 100 pages, I'm like, well, what's the problem? I read 100 pages. Meanwhile, everybody else is stressing out 100 pages and we got a test tomorrow. I'm like, right. no problem. 
Now, whether I did greater than or not is another thing, but I wasn't stressed out about it. That's all we doing is reading some pages and I have to give you some information. That's easy. So when you have those pivotal stress points and you're practicing law, you, you can look back and reflect on that and say, wait a minute, is this really that difficult? It's important, but is it really that difficult? Oftentimes the answer is no. And I think that is the trait that I carry with me as being a lawyer and like to give to other people, other mentees to carry on. I have stressed through this podcast that I think all successful attorneys have had a mentor or mentors to help them become successful and that it's so important to reflect upon that and to then take steps to mentor those following in our pathway to guide them and hope that things we've learned along the way can make them better lawyers as well. Yes, yes. And I've done that from the starting point of getting people into law school. Anybody that's worked for my firm, Juan Olivo, Robert Medine, the numbers are countless. Kim, uh, I can't remember Kim's last name. She's going to kill me. All went on to law school. It's about five of them. And now we got uh, Adriana Dazzle. She's getting ready to go to law school. You come to my firm. I don't want you working for me for 10 years. Three years and out. I don't want to see you in three years. Five years tops. You need to move on because, as you know, and I called you the, the big give back, the more people you have, this is kind of selfish, but it's the way the world works in giving back. The more people you have given to and they're out there in the community, the more they can help you when life makes a turn. You don't know when you're going to be litigating against Citibank. And next thing you know, someone that worked for your firm back in you know, 12 years ago, 10 years ago is the compliance officer there, or you go up against opposing attorney and you're like, didn't we go to law school? Weren't you at my law firm? You know, I mean, (laughs) I've walked into the Eastern District of New York and see a guy, Juan Olivo, who worked in my office, who's now at Hofstra. He's, you know, interning there. Robert Medine, who was a victim of false arrest, police brutality, suffered an awful beating. He went on to go to Law school. He was majoring in accounting. He went on to go to law school, graduated Howard Law School, and now he works for the board uh, compensation for 9-11 down in Washington, D.C. Those are great stories, and having a hand in that is just powerful. And it's rewarding, and it makes you feel good about how you can be in a profession where you can learn so much and really give back and help shape others. Yes, yes. I want to mention one thing. You did say, you know, knowing the other side of me, right? So if you want to know the other side of me, I would be remiss if I didn't say you got to go hashtag R square ESQ or at R square ESQ or Facebook R square ESQ two and look at all the things that we do outside of law. Uh, I, I don't have any problem sharing that part because the outside things that you do in law, thinking out of the box helps you in the practice of law and you should never shy away from that. Royce, how do you define a successful attorney? One that is not compromised. One that understands the power that they have. One that understands that it is mostly more what you do outside of the courtroom than inside the courtroom. When people come to you, they're usually at a vulnerable state. And whether you like it or not, you need to manage their expectations You need to take them to the next level. And this is so appropriate in civil rights. The case of Ramali Graham is one that comes to mind. When I first met his mother, 
clearly she was not emotionally stable or mentally stable to deal with what we were about to deal with. Marley was shot and killed by the police. Right, shot and killed in front of his grandmother and six-year-old brother in his house, unarmed, for which we I litigated the case and there was a a, a good con- con- compensation award to her. But that's that's only the beginning. That's not the end. You have to be able to take the person that is in that state and move them along the places to get get them where they need to be. And where do they need to be? They need to be an advocate. They need to be stable. They need to have a voice. And I, I do that on the civil and I do that on the criminal. On the criminal side, you need to have a voice. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're acquitted. And that's what being a lawyer should be about, is that giving real facts to real people about reality and what might be the end goal, what might happen at the finish line. You and I, if we worked on cases where we had to tell people, look, you're thinking A, may not be A, it'll probably be B. And if you're fine with B, then I'm the guy for you. Not that I'm not shooting for A, I'm always shooting for A, but it might be B. And if you're willing to walk with me and talk with me, I'm willing to walk with you and talk with you. And I'm not saying it's going to be smooth, but I will always tell you how I see it, whether you like it or not. And if you want that type of attorney that doesn't blow smoke up your nose, that doesn't say something that they're going to regret that they have said and want to give you all the options, but understand that there are options, then guys like you and I, we're built for it. And that's what we do. And that's the, that's the part of learning that you're never going to find in any book. You're never going to go to any trial and look and pick it up. But it's the part that makes you successful. And I think that's the human element. You have to be that type of person, right? Right. And I also think what you just described is what it takes to be a successful lawyer. I can think about the phrase that describes lawyers as counselors, right? We're right. often referred to as counselor. And I think that that is a really huge part of what we do is act as the role of counselor, somewhat of a therapist, and really manage and guide our clients uh, through the process, right? Right, right. And, and, I, and that could be done in a way that is somewhat enjoyable. It's not necessarily uh, draconian or ominous or, you know, an obstacle, a weight that you can't, ha- can't carry. It could be done in a way. Unfortunately, in the areas of false arrest, police brutality, I often deal with younger people than older people. And so I have more opportunities to make the influence And when I mean younger people, I don't mean 16 or 17, although that is the case. I mean younger 31, 32. I might be giving secrets away (laughs) as far as my age is concerned. But men and women that you can impart something upon them, that they can see what you're doing. A lot of my clients are shocked when they see me in Harlem and I'm going to get a haircut. And I see them. I'm like, what's going on? What are you doing here, Mr. Russell? What do you think, guy? Live in a castle somewhere? <laughs> no, I'm going to get a haircut. I didn't know you get a haircut over here. Yeah, I get a haircut over here. That is a data point that stays with them. That's a data point of trust, even though it's not a trust scenario. It's one of those scenarios like, oh, this guy comes. If he says we need to cross this street, we need to cross this street, even though I don't want to. And that's the counseling part that comes into play. You know, I bumped into a young lady. Um, I'm not going to say her name, but I bumped into her yesterday. She was a witness of the one of the first or second homicides I tried way back when. I knew her when she was 10 years old. She is now in her 30s. She saw me walking down the block and she was like, Mr. Russell, 
and stopped me. It was like, hey, I was like, oh my God, what are you doing? And she is doing wonderful. But that was 10 years old. Now she's in her 30s. And she remembers. You had an impact on her. She called her mother immediately. We joked on the phone. We're standing. We're laughing as hot as can be. We're laughing. We're just talking. We exchange numbers. You stay in their lives. I'm sure you got invited to weddings and things of that nature. You're like, maybe I'll go. Maybe I don't go. It's nice when it's not about just getting uh, or legal results for the client, but establishing a relationship, feeling good about what we do as lawyers. And I thank you for coming in and sharing your journey of how it was that you became uh, the successful, wonderful lawyer that you are and for sharing that with us here on The Mentor. Uh, I would hope that you'll join me for another episode where I have some ideas of some things I'd like to talk about with you if you're willing to come back. I'm definitely willing to come back. And everybody remember, you need to purchase Cardiac Arrest, a tactical guide on how to handle unlawful police stop. I'm sure you know someone, if not yourself, you can get it on Amazon. You can go to cardiacarrestbook.net. Uh, you can Google me up and call me and contact me personally. We want to get it out there. We want to make sure that everybody knows their rights because you should know your rights. And one thing I always tell everybody is that they can contact me with questions. Obviously, they can contact you with any questions they have in the world of civil rights, criminal defense, or questions about your book, right? Yes, definitely. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, thanks so much, Royce. And thank you all for listening to this episode of The Mentor ESQ. I hope you enjoyed it and hearing from my good friend, Royce. I'd extremely appreciate it if you'd leave us a good review and rating, and if you would share this podcast with your friends, colleagues, and classmates. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ.